Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a very exciting female founder, you know, a founder that is going to tell us quite a bit, you know, about uh, building and scaling and also one of a kind, you know, born and raised uh, in New York City. So I guess without further ado, Rachel Drury, welcome to the show today. Hi, thanks for having me. So you have to be like one of the, you know, uh, only people that I meet that are actually born and raised here, like like literally a one of a kind. I mean, this is like... <laughs> I spent some time out of the city too, but um, yeah, I was, I definitely spent my my early years in, in New York City. So unique from that perspective. So how was life growing up here in the city? Um... I liked it very much. Um, I also spent, you know, I as I grew older, um, we moved out of the city and spent some time outside. So, you know, kind of having both experiences was um, an interesting, uh, you know, it was interesting to be able to compare the two and contrast. And, um, you know, I think that raising kids now in New York City, I can kind of see some of the things that my parents were up against and I have a whole new appreciation for it. Got it. And then obviously you went to Penn, to Philly, and why political science? Oh, so I actually focused on, I actually had three majors. It was um, political science, fine arts, and um, economics, <laughs> um, and, which is, is kind of a, um, a interesting group of things to focus on in, in one's education. Um, but I love political science. I've always been really fascinated by the world around me. And I, I, I've always been very interested in, in motivational thinking and like, you know, why people are doing different things. And I found political science as a way to, to kind of dig deep into, um, you know, some of the conflicts in the past and, um, you know, things like mutual assured destruction are very fascinating concepts in my mind. Got it. And obviously, once you graduated from this, then you wanted to, you know, be part of a really big brand. And I guess this is when you went to the Four Seasons and were doing some marketing. So I guess what was the experience there like and what were your biggest takeaways? 
Yeah. So when I graduated college, I really wanted to work for what I thought at the time was the the best brand in the world. And um, while I had never stayed at a Four Seasons hotel, <laughs> uh, its its reputation, um, you know, was as it still is, uh, best in class. And you know, for me, I I knew I wanted to be a marketer, but I don't even think I really knew what that meant. Um, so I said, I'm gonna I'm gonna go learn from from somebody who who does. And I. I landed myself a job in New York City, um, you know, in an, in an office that was part of the corporate team and, you know, had just an incredible experience learning about, um, you know, not only marketing, but also really how hospitality and marketing um, are two sides of the same coin, same how marketing and hospitality are two sides of the same coin. And, you know, I talk a lot about customer centricity and a lot of businesses talk about customer centricity. Um, but for me, what I learned at, at Four Seasons was really that hospitality is is kind of next level customer centricity where you're not only, um, you know, meeting customer needs, but, you know, kind of anticipating um, and preempting and exceeding customer expectations. And that's really informed very much um, how I've built Daily Harvest. Very cool. So would you mind expanding a little bit more on customer centricity? Yeah. So, you know, in order to to build any brand, if you, if you want to create something that is for a customer, if, you know, you are a B2C business, um, you have to build something that not only people want, um, but that solves a problem. So Daily Harvest really exists to to solve for a need state. Uh, so for us, it's not only about the food, for example, like it's table stakes that our food meets customers' expectations. If you think it's going to be amazing, great. Um, but we've built a technology platform that allows us to anticipate customer needs and, um, you know, decrease the cognitive load required to to make decisions and, uh, you know, really truly be convenient because that's what our customers need us to be. Um, so, you know, when I, I kind of zoom out, it's really about, um, you know, going that extra steps that customers don't need to ask. And, you know, I say to, to a lot of the teams that are at Daily Harvest today, uh, particularly, you know, on the operation side, on the technology side, that, you know, if you guys are, if we are successful and if you guys do your job right, nobody will ever know that you existed. Um, and that's a, a really interesting concept for people to, to wrap their heads around, uh, especially, you know, people in, in like a technology role, for example, can, can, you know, have a very, um, a very unique perspective on the world and their place in it. But, you know, if you, if you say to them, you know, if every interaction with a customer should be a positive interaction with the brand. We should be anticipating customer needs and making sure that we've made their interactions with us as easy as possible. If people are talking about our technology or if they're talking about our customer service or if they're talking about like our boxes and not just saying that they love Daily Harvest, then we've probably done something wrong. Very cool. And we're going to be talking about Daily Harvest in, in just a little bit. But at what point there in Four Seasons did you say, hey, I'm going to go back to, to school and I'm going to do my MBA? Yeah. So it was always something that I, I wanted to do. And, um, you know, I have two parents that are entrepreneurs. I have a three entrepreneurial siblings. So for me, it, it was kind of um, something that I I knew I wanted and, um, I had never had experience with some of the, the like harder skills of, um, 
you know, how to do like a, a DCF, which I've never had to do, but anyway, <laughs> I learned it and it gave me confidence and I felt like it was the right thing to do. Um, you know, the idea of like going out and raising money seemed really intimidating to me. And not that I learned that in business school, uh, but it did give me confidence to say like, you know, I deserve to be here and um, I like, I deserve to have a seat at the table because I know everything that you know. Got it. Got it. So then, so then during this, uh, this experience with, for example, with your, with your MBA you know, I'm sure that you were really able to to foster a little bit more of that that business uh, mentality uh, and have more mm -hmm. visibility. You know, from a thirty thousand foot view, uh, you obviously had the opportunity as well to build some relationships. So, I guess, how did let's say business school shape up and open up you know, your eyes towards you know like business? Yeah. So, you know, for me, I I kind of always had a. I was always very business minded. As I said, I come from a family of entrepreneurs and like our dinner time conversation was always business. Um, so it wasn't so much that for me, what, what I found to be more, um, more an outcome of my time in business school was that I was able to take the time and the space to try different hats on and see what I was really good at. Um, you know, you kind of go from college where you're learning about political science and philosophy and economics, which are like very theoretical to, you know, this first job that you land in where, um, you know, it may or may not be a good fit, but you have to, you have to have like a job or an internship or something to, to really understand where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are. So I found that business school was, was a really great way for me to do that. I had an internship, um, at an agency called Siegel and Gale. I was super curious to know what it was like to work in an agency. I thought, you know, I really like to build things and, you know, I get, I, I like this, I like shiny new objects. So maybe an agency would be at a pace that would, that would work for me. Um, you know, I learned that, that that wasn't for me. Um, uh, I was able to, to try a bunch of different things. So for me, it was about like being able to have exposure and, and different internships and uh, be able to, to kind of cut my teeth in a lot of different areas to confirm what I was passionate about and what I was good at. So then in this case, I mean, obviously, you know, many people use business school as a really interesting pathway to start their own companies. Uh, in this case, yeah. you know, you were surrounded by entrepreneurs, you know, especially at, yep. at Thanksgiving and, and things like that with the family. Yep. So why did you go to Amex? Um, so I graduated business school in 2009, which was a very interesting time to graduate business school. Um, and of course, when you're graduating business school in the middle of a financial crisis, you go to work in a financial services <laughs> business. Um, it made zero sense, but um, it was the one company that I recruited for during on-campus recruiting. And I got a job offer super early in the year and it seemed like a safe thing to do given the uncertainty in the economy. And, um, you know, I, I said, okay, like, you know, worst case scenario, I get to, to, to learn from a huge, um, you know, behemoth of a, of a brand. I had a marketing role. I was able to, to kind of test out some of the new skills that I'd learned in business school, but also like understand at a more, um, you know, at a, at a larger scale business, what it was like to, to build an organization and, you know, what that looks like when thousands of people, um, are, are involved. So I guess, uh, obviously it's a different approach, you know, to marketing. I mean, here, 
you know, it's a, it's a super like big company, you know, very yep. good in branding in in positioning. So, so, I mean, what were like your big takeaways here when it comes to, to, to marketing and, and getting the word out? Yeah. So I think at, at Amex, I learned a lot about, um, project management and influencing without influence. So, so how do you get your project resourced when, you know, there are 50 people vying for the same resources and you need to get yours done to, you know, to meet your objectives. So, you know, that was really helpful. It was really also um, incredibly helpful with learning how to manage up. That is definitely a, a learned skill. Um, and, you know, something that's very important at a company like Amex and something that I had never been exposed to. So, you know, how do you present your work? How do you articulate your work? How do you, how to manage up, how to, you know, articulate your point of view, how to, you know, get buy-in. All of those things are learned skills that, um, you know, I dabbled with, I'd say in, in business school, there's a lot of that. Uh, but, you know, in, in a corporate environment, there, obviously the stakes are higher. And I think that I was able to put a lot of those skills to the test, which was really helpful. And, and you know, I continue to use those skills and all, you know, even though I'm not managing up per se, I still have a board and I still have, you know, lots of other people and investors and, um, folks that I, I do need to, um, you know, be thoughtful on how I communicate with. And, and guilt was obviously your next uh, phase, uh, your yeah. the most immediate one, uh, towards, you know, before you really got started as a, as an entrepreneur. So I guess, you know, in guilt, you know, a lot of people, you know, like really talk about a good pathway into building your own business to really go into mm -hmm. a smaller operation to really see how it works and then to to go at it rather than to going at it without really understanding the dynamics so so i guess how was how was that experience for you of really getting to see like a smaller company before you went at it on your own yeah absolutely so you know if the economy wasn't the way that it, it was in 2009, I probably would have, have gone straight to something entrepreneurial. And I'm, I'm kind of glad that I didn't, um, to be honest, but having that, <laughs> once the economy stabilized, I was like, all right, now's my opportunity. Um, this huge corporate behemoth isn't really my vibe. So I'm going to, I'm going to move over to something more entrepreneurial. And I had the opportunity to move over to jet setter, which, um, is, was part of or is, no, actually not anymore, uh, was part of, of Guilt Group. Actually, I don't even know if Jet Setter exists anymore, but it was part of Guilt Group. And um, it was the travel arm and it was a really small, fast growing team. So I had the opportunity there to, you know, wear multiple hats and, um, you know, build something. I, uh, during my interview for something totally unrelated. There was like one job opening and I said, you know what, I'm just going to take the interview. I convinced them that they needed to have more adventure travel, that just having hotels wasn't going to get them enough eyeballs. It wasn't going to have as much excitement. Um, I was passionate about travel. I've been to, you know, a lot of places that I think other people would have interest in going to. So, okay. So, um, you know, as I built out the adventure travel business at Jet Setter, um, you know, my, 
my interests grew in other areas and I was able to get myself onto the marketing team, uh, which was small but mighty and um, had the opportunity of kind of looking at all parts of the marketing mix, doing everything from, you know, business development to loyalty planning. And, um, you know, that's really where I was able to, to cut my teeth. So, you know, first building a new, a line of new business for Jet Setter and then, um, you know, really getting experience on the ground, um, you know, in, in all the things that build a business acquisition, loyalty, uh, you know, biz dev, all of those things I think served me incredibly well in starting daily harvest and, um, you know, our, our skills that I'm incredibly grateful to have had the opportunity to, to gain over the years. And obviously before daily harvest, you had a little rodeo that didn't go as planned. So why don't we just talk about that? And then that would be a, a good segue into daily harvest. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So I started this business called the Sunday fair with a friend from business school. And, um, you know, if you think back to before Zara Home, before H&M Home, we had the idea to start a business that was going to be fast fashion for home. Trends change really quickly. Today it's ombre, tomorrow it's tie-dye, and, um, you know, one day metallics are in and the next day people want neutrals. So we had the idea to source things from, you know, all over the world and create this business that was fast fashion for home, um, coupled with content. And, you know, we got it off the ground. We uh, bootstrapped it for a little bit, incredibly scrappy. We built everything. Um, and <laughs> a few months later, Zara Home, H&M Home both launched. And we were just like, well, that was fun. Um, it just, they weren't businesses that we were going to be able to compete with. And the other thing that we we had realized that, um, you know, was was very naive of us was the business that we were going to be in was not fast fashion for home. The business that we were going to be in was fundraising because of the nature of, um, of like, uh, of importing goods. So, you know, the way that you have to order things so far in advance and, you know, pay for inventory before it gets shipped across the world. And, you know, we were going to need so much cash to be able to get this business, um, off the ground and, and to really, and, and then to compete with H and M and Zara, we said, you know what, this was a, this was a fun, um, fun way to spend a few months. And like, we should just call it a day because, um, you know, the, the business fundamentals didn't make sense, but, you know, I, I, as, as much of a, um, of like a, I don't know, a, I don't want to call it a cautionary tale and I don't want to call it a blip. I don't really know what to call it. Um, as much as an experience as it was, I think it was actually, it was a good experience because, um, you know, I think that, that when I built Daily Harvest, I kind of uh, took pieces from all of my past experiences to how I built the business and, and what we've always focused on and what has always been um, dear to us. And one of those things is I wanted to make sure that the business model uh, was sound and that the, like, the cash conversion cycle made sense early on before I started anything. And I, I built the business with those things in mind. And I'm not sure I would have optimized for that quite as much as I did um, had I not had that experience. So then let's talk about like how this experience has shaped that up for Daily Harvest, which is your your baby. And yeah. uh, let's talk about, you know, like what that incubation process of, you know, from having that idea to really bringing it to life looked like. Yeah. So, um, 
you know, maybe I'll start with, with the latter and then, and then cover like how all the pieces come together. But, um, you know, for, I was somebody who was working incredibly hard, um, which means that I was really busy and I was kind of living between two worlds as we all do. I was living my, you know, IRL life and the fact that we have to call it an IRL life just kind of punctuates the problem, but I was also living this digital life and, um, you know, a slave to my calendar. Um, and living in these two worlds at once meant that I was often skipping lunch, grabbing a bar, um, sacrificing my own health, wellness, nutrition for, um, you know, being able to fit more into my day. Uh, so, you know, I really started daily harvest with the insight that like between meetings, I was grabbing trail mix or stale birthday cake and calling it lunch and moving on. And, and that takes its toll. So I started daily harvest because I wanted something that had no nutritional compromise. I was actually an athlete growing up. I was a rower and I knew, um, I know so much about health and wellness, uh, and nutrition, but I was never able to eat the way that I knew I should because of time constraints. Um, so I wanted something that was zero compromises. Nothing existed. Um, it was kind of at the beginning at the infancy of, of meal kit. And I just, um, you know, I thought meal kits were a really romantic idea. I understood why they existed, but they didn't work for me because it's a really romantic idea to have 45 minutes at the end of the day and to have such a predictable schedule that you're not going to have food perishing in your fridge. But that wasn't my life. So um, the insight, you know, was just that to start Daily Harvest. And um, I wanted to use Frozen, which, you know, I learned was more nutritious than anything that you buy fresh in the grocery store because of, you know, when, when it is frozen on the farm, which is how we freeze all of our food, the nutrients are actually maintained by the freezing process. So when you buy like a frozen blueberry, it's actually more nutritious than the blueberry that has been sitting in, in the grocery store for a week or two. Um, so taking that insight and also knowing that in that moment when you want to grab a bar, you don't have 45 minutes, you have maybe three. Um, otherwise, you're going to make a bad decision. You're going to grab the cookie. You're going to grab the birthday cake. Um, and I wanted to solve for for not only myself, but also, you know, the hundreds of thousands of millions of people that I know are out there, that I knew were out there, that, um, you know, were, were caught in the same hustle and trading care for convenience. So that you knew that we're out there. So tell us about validating this thing and, you know, really you know, yep. coming up with, with, with that concept that you knew it was the one to put into the market. Yeah. So, um, you know, if I was going to, to dive in head first and go all in, I wanted to, to really prove the concept first. So the way that I did that was incredibly scrappy and, um, I got myself a commercial kitchen in Long Island city. I would literally go to Trader Joe's and buy frozen fruit. Um, <laughs> and I would, you know, put everything together in this commercial kitchen and, um, I built a website. I, I designed the packaging, which was terrible to start. Um, and I would deliver everything in my car in New York city. And I said to myself, you know, just so that I'm not drinking my own Kool-Aid or, you know, my own smoothies in this case, how can I objectively, um, prove out that this is working? Like, what would that look like? So I said once five times, 
more people that I didn't, that I don't know are buying than those that I do know, um, then that means that I've gone beyond the circle of like, you know, the, the Girl Scout cookies and, and wrapping paper sales, um, of, of my elementary years where, you know, my, my parents bring it to work and they're like, just buy this please for my daughter. (laughs) Otherwise, like, I'm not sure we can still be friends. Um, I wanted to make sure that I got beyond that, um, you know, that ring of, of influence. And I wanted to make sure that there was, that this was one, really solving a need, making people's lives easier. Um, and that it was, that I was doing it the right way and that it was something that people wanted. And, you know, what's interesting is my background was always marketing and branding and, uh, more on that side of the world, uh, of the business world. And, and I actually, tried to be really disciplined with myself to not focus on that area in the early days. Cause I always knew that I could do that. That would be easy for me. Um, but if I was creating something that solved a problem that people really needed, then that stuff didn't matter. And it was almost more indicative of how much of, of like how important the role of what I was creating was for people. Um, and that I was actually solving for the need state that I talked about earlier. Um, so, you know, I, when, if you look at the early days of daily harvest, it was, I mean, scrappy doesn't even cover it It was gross. Um, but people bought it because I really solved this problem and, you know, it, it happened really quickly where, um, you know, eight weeks after six, I don't, it was somewhere between six and eight weeks after, um, setting up this little experiment, uh, I had hit the number where five times more people that I hadn't, you know, had zero connection to me were buying daily harvest. And, um, you know, that's when I decided to, to dive in head first and, you know, invest my own money and bootstrap for as long as I could before I had, um, you know, enough, enough, um, track record to, to do a raise on. Because for the people that are, that are listening, what ended up being the business model of daily harvest? Um, yeah, so we deliver direct to consumer. We deliver, um, you know, all sorts of food, smoothies, overnight oats, chia parfaits, harvest bowls, soups, lattes. I mean, you name it, we, we make it. And it's all made of unrefined, unrefined, unprocessed food uh, that is organic and incredibly clean. And it's frozen on the farm. Um, and all of the goodness is, is in your freezer so that it's ready when you need it. And it looks nothing like a TV dinner. It looks nothing like, um, you know, anything that you've ever seen in the freezer aisle, but it's going back to what frozen food was before the industrial revolution, before the industrialization of food, where we ruined food, but taking it back to how, you know, our, our ancestors used to preserve food without preservatives. And that was by freezing it. Um, and it's, you know, unprocessed, unrefined form. And, and that's what we make today. And, uh, we deliver direct to consumer. You go on, you choose a box size, and you know you can choose any combination of food that fits your lifestyle. Um, you know, and our mission, just going back to the reason I started the business, is is that we take care of food so that food can take care of you. And we're really all about that care. And that's where I, I kind of go back to my earlier experiences. That care um, is so important. And and that really goes back to my experience at Four Seasons and um, the idea of hospitality and not just customer centricity. Um, and, you know, I'm really grateful for that experience. And I'm, I'm grateful that we've been able to build a business that I think has, has really solved a problem for a lot of people who couldn't take care of themselves because they were taking care of so many other things out there in their lives. So I, I imagine that for a business of this nature, uh, you know, I'm sure, Rachel, that 
the logistics, you know, like and addressing, you know, those logistics were quite challenging. So how did you go about that? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I started delivering everything in my car and packing everything up myself. So, um, you know, I, I kind of knew the insides and and the ins and outs of, of what was possible, but I had to figure out how to make the business incredibly scalable if I knew that it was going, if I, you know, if it was going to be as successful as I knew it could be. So, um, there's so much trial and error. I mean, the only people who were delivering frozen at the time was, um, Omaha steaks and they were doing it in styrofoam. And, you know, I just knew that the customer that, that was, was interested in clean organic food was not interested in polluting the environment. So I had to find another solution and it was so much testing and so much iteration and so many mistakes and so many melted boxes uh, before we finally figured out something that worked. Got it. And for the business, you guys have raised uh, quite a bit of money. How much money have you guys raised? Today? Yep. Um, so our series B, which was our last round was $43 million. Um, and we raised that about two years ago, um, which, you know, was a very large round, but, you know, we've, we've brought some great partners around the table and, um, you know, it, it's been wonderful. And I guess uh, it's, it's interesting because you were mentioning that at the beginning you were, you were bootstrapping this. I mean, obviously the seat you guys raised it in like yeah. 2016. So can you walk yeah. us through how has been that experience of raising capital for a business of this nature, also being, yep. you know, a female founder, because, you know, I know that the the industry is changing. Thank God, you know, that boys club mentality mm. finally is being disrupted. But I guess, uh, you know, like, how have you seen that and how has been the experience for you to raise this money over time? Yeah. So those early rounds were rough and I, I bootstrapped the business, not because I wanted to and not because, you know, I had, I had, I didn't want to dump my entire savings into, into a business. <laughs> like that is super risky. Oh, yeah. Um, but for me, you know, that first round of funding was, was super rough. And honestly, the second round of funding was super rough too. Um, you know, and people don't, don't talk about this. Everybody likes to make it sound like shiny and easy, but, um, you know, for me it wasn't. And, you know, just talking about the, the world of venture, um, you know, yes, it is changing and I'm grateful for that, but it's not changing as much as I, I think it ultimately needs to. Um, because, you know, what happens is you get in this room with a bunch of, of men generally, and they're not necessarily the customers and they don't understand it and it doesn't resonate with them. And that, you know, they don't get as excited over something that they can't see themselves using, something that's not solving a problem for them. Yeah. Um, and that's what I saw early on. And that's why I, I had no choice but to bootstrap. I believed in the business. I knew I was helping people. I knew that I was solving a problem. I knew I was solving for this need state. Um, but the venture community couldn't see it. Um, so, you know, I was lucky enough after kissing a lot of frogs, um, finding some really wonderful investors who did understand it. Um, you know, a bunch of, of female a bunch of uh, female funders and also, um, you know, some male funders who, you know, just understood it. One of them has four daughters and he was like, he was like, my daughters are obsessed with this. And, you know, what's funny is um, daily harvest is just as much for men as it is for women, but women make 80% of the consumer purchasing decisions in this country. So, you know, it, it generally takes a woman buying daily harvest for 
per household um, for it to be a success for for a man to consume. Um, and that is what I what I faced in the the world of venture. So um, you know, it's I mean, our series A even though I had objectively proven that the business was successful, we had grown at incredible speeds. We had shown true hockey stick, um, you know, hockey stick growth. It's still, you know, I would get questions like, oh, you know, can you send some to my wife? I'd love to see what she thinks about it. And I was like, no, I can't. <laughs> like, are you, are you not an adult? Do you not make decisions for yourself? Um, so, you know, I ended up putting together my own term sheet for our series A and it was um very controversial thing to do at the time, but I had gotten term sheets that I didn't think valued what we had created and I didn't think that they were from people who understand understood what we were building. Um so I made my own term sheet and we were able to get, you know, more um more investors around the table than, you know, just one or two and um I really actually I feel grateful to have been able to pull that off because the people who we brought in on that round have been so helpful in this journey because, you know, they are daily harvest consumers. They are daily harvest diehards. And, you know, they're the ones who, who were coming to us with, you know, feedback and ideas and excitement. And that's who I wanted, um, you know, in my corner. And, you know, it's a, it's very interesting, this approach. And, you know, I'm right there with you that it's it's a little bit more complicated than having a lead and then you have a lead investor and then you're going to others. Yep. Like in this case, you know, like doing the syndicate and putting the term sheet, how were you able to really generate that uh, momentum with people when yep. they knew you did not have a lead? Yeah. So um, I had had term sheets for a lead. Uh, and I basically went back out to all of those people and I said, look, you know, here's what I'm thinking. This is why I'm thinking it. Um, this is what I would like these terms to look like. I would love to have you around the table, but just you around the table is not what's best for this business. I need people from, you know, X, Y, and Z areas. I have them. I've spoken to them. I have them committed. It like everybody rises together here. So, you know, if, if you are, if you were interested in participating at a larger check size, can I, can I convince you to participate at a smaller check size? Um, and you know, for some people they had, had an ownership threshold and that just wasn't a possibility, but for a lot of people, you know, they, they respected it. And, um, you know, while I don't think they'd seen it a lot, uh, you know, they wanted to participate. Got it. So I guess uh, here for you now, I mean, it's it's remarkable growth. Uh, I mean, I see that you you guys have a lot of employees. I mean, how many people do you have now in the business? Uh, we're about 160 people. Wow. Amazing. So I guess, uh, you know, now, you know, when you're like kind of like looking back and, you know, you started this uh, business, let me just repeat that. Now you're probably like looking back and, you know, when you started the business, like really, uh, you know, from your own car and now you have all these people that you have onboarded. I'm sure that you've also grown a lot, you know, as a leader, as an yes. entrepreneur, as a person. So I guess, uh, you know, like what have you done to be able to grow at the same pace with the business? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is the hardest part of the job. It's that I wake up every morning and I don't know what my job is. <laughs> I kind of have to have to, um, you know, evolve in as the business evolves and as uh, you know the demands on on me evolve. And I never know what those are going to be day to day. I mean, some days I'm dealing with like, you know, 
there's a leak on our floor or our internet is out. Um, you know, and some days I'm dealing with fundraising. It's just, I never know what, what's going to, um, you know, what I'm going to wake up to. But, you know, over time, I'd say every six months, my job has changed so fundamentally. And, um, you know, I've always leaned on, on people who have done it before me. So, you know, I've, I've made some great relationships. The entrepreneurial community in New York is, is really wonderful. Um, and, you know, I've reached out to other founders and I've said, Hey, you know, you guys are, are six months to a year ahead of us. You know, I'd love to, to, you know, just talk to you about some of the things that you faced at this stage. And people have been really helpful. And, you know, my instincts have, have, um, you know, brought us, brought me a long way. And, and I think that if there's one thing that I've learned, it's to trust those instincts, but also I don't always need to be, I didn't always need to reinvent the wheel because there, there are a lot of people out there who have kind of faced some of the same things, um, you know, at the same stage, uh, that I was able to call on to ask for advice. Got it. And one of the questions that I typically ask to the guests that come on the show is, Knowing what you know now, Rachel, I mean, quite a quite a ride, quite a ride with Daily Harvest. Knowing what oh, you know yeah. now, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and have a chat yeah. with that younger Rachel, perhaps the mm-hmm. younger Rachel that maybe, you know, like was a, a leaving, you know, guilt and, you know, starting something, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself and why knowing what you know now? Yeah, I mean, I already alluded to it, but it's really to trust my instincts. Um, I think that that being new to the entrepreneurial world and being a first-time founder, being a first-time CEO, being a first-time everything, um, oftentimes I would I would default to like, oh well, what is my board member telling me to do, or what is what is X, Y, and Z person telling me to do? Um, and while those inputs have been incredibly beneficial and and helpful to have those voices around the table, you know, giving me different perspectives and different points of view that ultimately I, I need to trust my instincts. And, you know, I definitely made some, some bad decisions, uh, not trusting my instincts. Uh, but I think that, that as time has gone on that, um, you know, if I really dig deep, that usually I do know what to do. Um, and, and if, if, um, you know, that, that little voice inside is saying, don't do something and I'm doing it, I should stop doing it. Uh, you know, or if, if the voice inside is saying like, you should, should take a big swing here, um, you know, and, and things like logic are getting in the way, um, that it, it actually might get, it might pay off to, to take that big swing. And obviously a calculated, not reckless way. Um, but you know, I, I think, I think people, um, who are especially first-time entrepreneurs sometimes underestimate their own abilities because they're you're like, oh, well, this person who's done it 10 times before, um, you know, is saying, you know, is saying go right. And, you know, I'm thinking I should go left. Ultimately, you know, the entrepreneur is the one that, that knows the business best and, and understands it, um, you know, at, at the um, most basic level. So, you know, just making sure that, that you get those, those inputs and then are able to make an informed decision while also trusting your gut, I think is, is what I would tell my, my past self. Absolutely. So Rachel, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, usually on Instagram, actually. Rachel Drury, you can DM me. I'm, I'm very responsive. <laughs> very cool. Very cool. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. 
Of course. Thanks so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.